I got to one of those points where you don't know how to finish something. Because once you say it's finished, then it's open for critique by everyone. But as long as you say I'm still working on it, you're safe, you know. I didn't know how to finish this album, and Van Dyke Parks visited me. And he's, he saw me having a problem without me telling him. And he said, imagine you're going to die in two weeks. What would you like to say? So I wrote Southern Night. That's composer, producer, arranger, pianist, and recipient of the 2012 National Medal of Arts, Alan Toussaint. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced by the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Robert Plant and Alison Krauss, Patti LaBelle, The Rolling Stones, Glenn Campbell, and Jerry Garcia, not to mention Paul McCartney and Paul Simon. These are just a few of the singers who have covered tunes written by the legendary Alan Toussaint. A prolific songwriter and esteemed producer, Alan Toussaint has created hit after hit and makes them all seem effortless. He was born and raised in New Orleans, and that city certainly gave shape to his music with its rhythms, soul, and funk. Alan Toussaint has thrown his musical net wide, scoring with songs like Mother-in-Law, Working in the Coal Mine, and The Fortune Teller, as well as instrumentals. Think of Whipped Cream, the standard Herb Alpert made famous, and which was made more famous as the original theme of the dating game. Toussaint also plays the piano like a dream, with a lyrical, elegant touch, as evidenced by his award-winning instrumental album, The Bright Mississippi. His song list is practically matched by his list of awards, which include the Grammy Trustees Award, the Songwriters Hall of Fame, the Blues Hall of Fame, and a National Medal of Arts. When Alan Toussaint came to Washington, D.C. to receive his medal from President Obama, I had the opportunity to speak with him, and I asked him to tell me more about his haunting song, Southern Night. It was a culmination of my life as a little boy, going out to the country, riding with my father, my sister and brother and mother, out to visit the old Creole-speaking people in the country. And all how that felt, it felt so wonderful and safe and warm. So I wrote that just to tell people about that. It's the most inspiring piece because many times when we write, we would rather always be inspired by almost supernatural inspiration. Other times we just write because we have tools and it's time to write and we know how to do that. But Southern Night, when I was doing that, it felt like a soft cloud, really clear, soft, nice cloud came and hovered right over me. I actually felt caressed and hugged while I was doing that. Did you grow up in a musical house? Well, yes and no. My father, before I was born, was a trumpet player in, in a big band, not a popular big band, but 
played on the weekends. But he had three children and, and a wife, so by the time I came along, he had given up that idea, and he was a railroad mechanic. So it's in the blood. Uh, my sister began taking piano lessons when she was a girl, but it was short-lived because she had a teacher who spanked her hands when she made a mistake. She wanted no part of that. Yeah, she didn't take many lessons, but she was a smart girl, and she learned whatever she did quickly, and it was a great help to me because I humbly thought when I saw this piano and went over and touched it, I started picking out little melodies very soon thereafter, and I understood the two blacks, three black keys, two black, and I understood the octaves and all. However, she was one who could tell me, this what you're pressing here is there on the page. Though she, her, her lessons were short-lived, now I see what they were for. They were to get me started. What did you listen to? I listened to the radio, so I listened to everything that played. And during those days, there was a lot of hillbilly music on the radio. So I learned all those saloon-type hillbillies. And late at night, they were boogie-woogies. And I just thought God had played that and sent it to us. Uh, so I learned a lot of boogie-woogies and some blues. But on Sundays, my mother would play classical music on the radio and operas and symphonies all day long. She loved that. Though we were poor as Job's turkey, she thought she was pretty ritzy. And so I heard a lot of that, and I just thought that was the epitome of music. And I thought, any time I heard a piano, I thought all piano players could play that except me, so I had better get on it. So I tried to play every genre, because I just thought it was all one big music. And everyone could play it all except me, so I tried to play it all. I learned later on, many years later, that no, they're specialists. But I really fell equally in love with all of the musics. Then I heard this Professor Longhair. I was just going to ask you, when did you first hear Professor Longhair? Oh, good heavens. I had to make a left turn when I heard that. Wherever I was going before, I wanted to go wherever he was going. And uh, that was a shock to me, and it was just absolutely lovely to hear that off-the-beaten-path music that uh, wasn't in the same regiment as everyone else. I consider him as serious of inventor as the greats, as the Bachs and the Mendelssohns and Beethovens and all. Now, how did you move into becoming a professional musician? Well, at 13 years old, we formed a neighborhood band all the kids around the same age. We began playing the songs off the radio, and we'd play for school hops and other joints out in the country where we were too young to be, but during that day you could get away with it. But we started this neighborhood band, and we would mimic whatever was the call of the day on the radio. That's how I got started playing professionally, meaning get paid. Yeah. Getting paid was uh, sometimes a dollar and a half. Right. <laughs> but our regular income was $8.50, so we were in hog's heaven at that time. And when was your first time in a studio? Early on, when I was 16, Dr. John, Mac Rambanak, and myself, we used to play on sessions together, called in by Cosmo Matassa, who owned the studio, the number one studio, the only studio there. And anyone who was recording, who come to New Orleans to record, would get in touch with Cosmo. And Cosmo would call someone who would call the other musicians around town who would fit whatever's needed for that day. And they knew that I 
was one who had listened to the radio and could play most of the music of the day. So I was called in to play on recording sessions during that time. Uh, many times by Cosmo Matassa himself, uh, sometimes by Dr. John. And after a while, I began to be in charge of the sessions myself, where I would actually call people. You began producing. Yeah, well, uh, I began actually producing with the title attached to me. Of course, it was called A&R Man at that time, which was not a proper name for what we were doing, because A&R Man mean artists and repertoire. What got me started producing was Minute Records. Uh, when Minute Records was starting by Joe Banishak and Larry McKinley, M-I-N-I-T, they had a they were holding auditions at a radio station, and several of the kids around town who was going to audition wanted me to be there because they knew I could play behind them because I knew the songs. And I wound up playing for people I didn't even know, but I had a wonderful time. The two gentlemen who started the company, Larry and Joe, was uh, elated having me, and I was more elated being with them, so I stayed on, and that, that's where my producing career got started and I would produce and arrange and write songs. We had a wonderful time. Now, when did you start writing? I started writing songs with lyrics at 12. Very humble songs, wasn't recording them yet, but I remember starting writing then. I started writing melodies a little earlier than that, maybe around nine, and just little simple melodies. I just loved it. After you play around, a lot and you've gone over many things you're learning for that day it just seemed to come natural that you want to get to something on your own especially if you copy everything you hear you're just bombarded with so many ideas coming from everywhere so it was very natural for me to just pick out something here and there and I I started putting them on a web card tape recorder and listening back to see what it was about but you didn't want to be the front man I still don't care about being the front man I feel my comfort zone is behind the scene, writing the songs, putting them together, getting with the artists and seeing can I make the best spirit that the artists have shine in this moment. I like to tailor whatever I'm doing for the artists, the song, I like to tailor it for them and tailor the whole atmosphere for them and write the arrangements. I love to write the arrangements like playing God. I mean, you have it in your imagination, put it down and after a while you give that and what wasn't there begin to happen. That's a wonderful feeling. So that's my zone that I feel I was called to. Well, here's the question. If you're producing and it's a song that you've written, are you strict? Do you have a sense of the way you want this done? Or are you open to a kind of spontaneity that can happen in the studio? Well, I, I lived and learned how important spontaneity can be. And even a better word came uh, called serendipity. <laughs> but uh, in my earlier days, I was very rigid, and I didn't want one phrase to be anything other than what I had lived with over the few nights or days that I was putting it together. And I wanted it exactly like that. And I wanted the singer to sing exactly like that, every note and on the rise here and there. I can remember in early days that I thought the music was perfect until we touched it. I, I tried to protect the music as I, uh, but later on I began to accept uh, spontaneity. And uh, I'm glad because I think there's a lot of gifts 
because it is art. So we're not responsible for everything when we begin to chip away at a stone to carve a statue. That sometime it comes out before we thought it was. We see the face before we thought we would. And if we open, we can get all kinds of wonderful gifts because the whole uh, world of art is bigger than any of us. We just participate in it. So, like I said, I did live and learn because I can recall when I was so rigid, it was just uh, downright rude. But I'm glad that I overcame that and began to relish uh, the little gifts that would come from something you didn't expect. But there's a certain uh, a part of the uh, initial intent that I must still have. Your songs are covered by so many people. Yes. So working in the coal mine, for example, Lee Dorsey, this was an incredible, incredible version of it. And then how many years later, Devo comes out with a completely different version of, of the song. What did you think? Because your songs are covered by so many people. Do you sometimes think, oh, no, don't do it that way? I never think, no, don't do it that way. Uh, I always think, grateful that you did it. And I must say that I'm glad you asked it like that because I really appreciated when someone, for one thing, for them to do it at all, that meant they thought this is something they should do. And when they even get involved and want to add their own twist to it, they become sort of a collaborator. Oh, isn't that interesting? If I just want to hear the original, just go listen to the original. But now someone has brought something else which I consider very respectful, that they cared enough about it to take it there. And I, I love the surprise that I get from it. And then there's some people who record it just like you recorded it, and I, I like that as well. I appreciate it in every way. And like when Robert Plant, the young lady, did. Uh, Alison Krauss. Yes, yes. You certainly got this history down. <laughs> but I love the job that, that they did. T-Bone Walker, who produced that, they gave it another mellow mode that was co quite a collaboration. It was like a gift to me. Now I'm happy It's a merit to the fortune teller And I'm as happy as we can be And now I get my fortune told for free Mother-in-law. And oh, you weren't okay. even married when you wrote that song. Oh, no, not at all. Tell me, what was it like working with Ernie Cato? He was the cockiest person in the world, and uh, he didn't mind being cocky and letting you know that he was. And even before he recorded, he would tell everyone, I'm already a star, y'all just don't know it yet. But I, don't, I didn't mind that, because I, I, I like people who feel like that. I like people who want it so badly till they eat and sleep that. When you feed that person, they take it and really run as far as they can with it, as hard as they can. Well, I wrote four songs for him to do, because we used to do four songs every time we recorded. A session consists of four songs and three hours you do them in. And Mother-in-Law was just one of them. We had gone over a, another one before that, and it went okay. And when we got to Mother-in-Law, and I was giving it to him, he, went, he used to like the blind boys, and Archie Brown used to shout like he was preaching, and Ernie Cato used to like to sing like that. But the song Mother-in-Law was based on an actual pentatonic mix in there, which is kind of, it's more mellow than to preach and holler. And he approached it with that really hard, 
and preaching kind of attitude. And I just gave up on it after a couple of efforts and put it in the trash can. I really did. And my friend, Willie Harper, took it out of the trash can and told him, no, this is a really good song, Cato. Try and calm down and do it the way he's asking you to do it. did and we had a wonderful time with it it was fun and, and on the other side was fortune teller yeah the b-side yes that's been covered and and we mentioned robert plant and allison cross but that's been covered by everybody oh yeah and uh, famous rolling stone Stones, version right. many years ago uh, i usually uh, sort of humorously say and they know how to roll all the way to the bank <laughs> you collaborated on a few quite a few songs with lee dorsey Yes, well, I wrote most of the songs uh, as opposed to collaborating. Working in the coal mine, for example. Did you write it for him? All the time. Every song was, that Lee Dawson sung was written for him to sing. And I, I venture to say that if it wouldn't have been for him, that song wouldn't have been written. Working in a coal mine, going down, down, down. Working in a coal mine, about to step down. Working in a Neither he or I knew anything about a coal mine. I still don't know why I wrote that. But he and I spent a lot of time in the studio, but much time out of the studio. He would visit my place, and we'd hang out. We'd go to clubs at night. We had a lot of fun together. We'd ride motorcycles together. We'd race Cadillacs together. We had a good time. And he was such a high-spirited guy. He, his whole life was a smile. I guess that's why there's so much uh, diversified songs with him, because I could write very humorous songs with him, and from time to time a very serious song. You wouldn't write Working in a Coal Mine for Luther Vandross, you know, he's too romantic and cool. <laughs> but for Lee Doss's smiling voice and the way he felt about things, and humorous as he was, you could write uh, such a wide gamut of stuff for him. We have to talk about whipped cream and Herb Albert because he is a fellow recipient of a National Medal of Arts. Yes, what a, what a player. What went into writing that? Whipped cream was written as a joke. When I went, I went to the military in 63 to 65, and while there, I played the piano the whole time, but we also had a small band that we played gigs on the weekends. And while I was in the military, Java, which I had written before, came out on Al Hurt. And when some of the guys in the band heard that I had written Java, they thought that that was so funny because they considered it a popcorn kind of song. They, they figured, I must be too hip to write something like Java. And I didn't take it that way because uh, it was a little more serious than that. But I was in charge of all that they had to play, all of the music that they had to play every night. So I wrote about 
10 songs in the air of one who would write Java would write this and that and the other, and whipped cream was one of them. And they had to play all these popcorn songs that I wrote because I was in charge of all the music, and we had a good time. Whipped cream was written as one of those things since they had laughed at Java. it became the original theme song for the original dating game by Tijuana Brass, who mimicked it very well, but with, with the Herb Alpert flair. Oh, wonderful flair he has, the way he do those dips on the trumpet. Mm -hmm. I yeah. just, I think he's phenomenal, just, and he was phenomenal for uh, whipped cream. And again, he, like the Rolling Stones, knew how to blow it to the bank. The Bright Mississippi, your solo CD, and how strange was that? Because there you are, A, you're the front man, and B, you're not producing it, and C, there aren't songs that you wrote. A luxury. <laughs> it was a luxury. <laughs> uh, all I had to do is sit and play. In fact, Joe Henry, the producer, who I admire tremendously, he did everything but play the piano. He set it up, he chose all of the songs, and he chose all of these instrumentals, which I was very happy to do because I prefer playing than singing and we only have one vocal song on it but he chose all of these great standards and at first when he wanted to produce me I thought he wanted some New Orleans funk like you might expect but he chose these wonderful classic treasures of America and uh, presented them to me and I was most impressed when I looked into that box of gems that this is what he think of me so I got right to it, and he chose all of them, the musicians who would play on it, and he chose Gentle Giants. And uh, we went to Avatar Studio in New York, and we recorded them all. with integrity, smoothness, unhurried. You could retire easily on that. I can't even begin to list all the people that you've worked with because it would go on for pages and days. But a recent collaboration, Elvis Costello, and the CD was River in Reverse. Yes, indeed. And that was the first recording done in your hometown of New Orleans after Katrina, wasn't it? It was indeed. And uh, we wanted to do the whole thing there, but we couldn't get in early on because we were still under martial law in New Orleans. So we couldn't get back in when we started the album. So we started in, in California at Sunset Studio. And uh, we was recording there. But Elvis is such a dear heart and uh, creative thinker. He he was really insisting on, we have to do some of this in New Orleans. And uh, near the end, we were able to go to New Orleans to do the last bit of the album. So glad we did. It was so right. For one thing, I don't know any other musician who carries as much information 
love and respect for the music than Elvis Costello. And I don't mean for just surface, I mean subsurface, subterranean, anywhere deep, deep under. But he chose a, so many of my old songs that I had laid to rest and thought I would never hear about them again. He would bring it up and say, well, how about this and how about that? In fact, he told me he always wanted to do an Alan Toussaint songbook. And he said, now here we are. What do you think of that? And I said, that's a wonderful idea. Can we talk very briefly about your experiences with Katrina? You lost your studio, you lost your home. Oh, yes, yes. Well, Katrina, yeah, I lost. Katrina wiped out the studio. It just was a big gray mass. It was interesting to see, however, and my home as well. When I walked in, everything was gray. It was covered with this big, thick, it looked like insulation foam you would spray on something, but it was all gray. And it was quite artistic looking to me, to be perfectly frank. And when I went home and saw all of that, I knew that everything was lost. But I didn't feel badly even about it. I just felt everything here has served me very well to that day. And now it's gone, but it served me well to that day. And that's all right. It was really all right. Because there was one thing that I would have cared most dearly for for some reason, it was with me, and it was videos. I've been carrying a, a video camera since I was a teenager. So I used to shoot my mother and father, and then later on I shot my children with the camera and all that. So the day before the storm actually hit, because it was threatening, that evening they finally coaxed me to get out of the house and go to a hotel where I would be on a higher floor. And I did, but I took all of my videos with me because I was going to be stuck in this hotel so I could be looking through them to mark down where things were so when I meditate, I would know where stuff is. So that's the only thing I took. And that was the only thing that was saved. And if I'd have lost it, I'd have felt the worst about. So I had the most dearest thing in my life for as an object. The most dearest things in my life were saved. Everything else was gone, except the clothes I had on my back. But again, when I went back a month or so later, because martial law kept us out, and saw all that gray mass everywhere, and I decided right at that moment, it served me well till that day. And I stuck with that. And I still feel all right about it. I feel it was a baptism, not a, not a tragic drowning. You're back. Not that home, but a I'm back home. in New Orleans, yeah. yes. I retain an apartment in New York, but I am back in New Orleans. I'll always live in New Orleans. New Orleans feeds me. And Jazz Fest came back? Oh, yes, Jazz Fest insists on being back. Yes, the spirit of New Orleans is alive and well. I dearly love the festival. It is so good for us. And I love being a part of it because, again, I always feel I would prefer being backstage, seeing to it that things like that happen. And the Jazz Fest was the one time I was totally up front and center. I love the Jazz Festival. You love New Orleans. Oh, dearly, dearly, yes. Okay, I have to read this because there are just too many awards for me to remember. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Blues Hall of Fame, the Louisiana Music Hall of Fame, the Louisiana Lifetime Achievement Award. And the Songwriters Hall of Fame, somewhere in there. And now a National Medal of Arts. This is the daddy of all. This is the historical moment, as far as I'm concerned, this award, yes. 
tell me what's next for you. Well, I'm about to get on the project that my son and I are going to do, which is about many songs that I've written through my travels since Katrina. Been much traveling and much different kind of inspiration, and I'm looking forward to getting to that. And I look forward to hearing it. Alan Toussaint, many, many congratulations. And thank you so much for giving me your time. I really do appreciate it. My pleasure. That was composer, producer, arranger, pianist, and National Medal of Arts recipient, Alan Toussaint. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. The Artworks podcast is posted each Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. In the southern sky Southern night.